Welcome to a new episode of Barlume, the organized crime podcast. The show that explains the underground worlds of mafia, organized crime and terrorism in an easy and accessible way in the time of a coffee break. I'm Agatha, and in this episode I'll take you to the Netherlands, where the emergence of a powerful drug syndicate may turn the country of tulips and bicycles into a narco-state. Fifteen million containers per year. A hundred eighty thousand workers. 12,600 hectares. The port of Rotterdam is the largest in Europe and the tenth in the world by volume of goods in transit. Railways link it to the rest of Europe in 24 hours. One of its terminals is called a ghost terminal because it is almost entirely automated. With such numbers, it is no surprise that authorities cannot control the content of every cargo that goes through the port. And that makes Rotterdam, the second largest city in the Netherlands, a perfect gateway for drugs, especially cocaine, into Europe. Traffickers, of course, bear part of their responsibility, as they develop increasingly refined techniques to conceal drugs in transit cargoes. The classic method involves hiding cocaine in containers without the shipper's knowledge, then placing a seal on the door to disguise the operation and having an accomplice in the port to retrieve the drug once at destination. With the recent increase in controls, however, traffickers have had to come up with more creative methods. Expect to find cocaine hidden in metal pipes welded under ships, in tanks and engine rooms, tied up on the outside of vessels, or even hidden in fake containers that mimic legitimate containers in every way, including the serial number. Drugs are often thrown into the water with a ballast shortly before arrival at the port, and then retrieved from the seabed, a technique already used in the Mediterranean. Because corruption within institutions is rare in the Netherlands, traffickers usually target individuals. They started by bribing dock workers to look the other way or to retrieve cocaine. Then they began infiltrating so-called extractors. These are people paid to spend entire days in the port waiting for the arrival of a shipment of drugs to be extracted from their hiding place. To gain access, extractors pay port operators up to 500 euros to rent their access badges and uniforms. Once inside, extractors hide in containers registered as empty but perfectly furnished for overnight stays. The structure of the port of Rotterdam and traffickers' ability are not the only elements contributing to cocaine trafficking in the Netherlands. According to an investigation by the US weekly magazine The Nation, the Netherlands' policy of tacit tolerance toward drugs means that repression is not fierce, especially in comparison to the drug wars waged by the United States. More on the US war to drugs in our episodes on Kiki Camarena and on Colombian cartels. According to the investigation, this bland approach towards narcotics is influenced by two factors. The first is the belief that the only crimes that are worth prosecuting are those that lead to visible violence, such as deaths on the streets. 
This idea dates back to a 1971 report commissioned by the Dutch government to criminologist Luke Holzman. The second factor is the fact that demand and consumption of cocaine in the Netherlands is very low. 90% of the drug entering the country is destined for other markets. International dynamics would also be contributing to the increase in cocaine imports into Europe. First, production in source countries like Colombia, Peru and Bolivia is becoming increasingly fragmented and specialized since the fall of the big drug cartels of the 90s. Second, the Colombian government has put a stop to the fumigation of cocaine plantations since its appeasement with FARC rebels in 2016. Third, conditions are more favorable for traffickers in Europe than in the United States. The wholesale price of cocaine is higher, $14,000 per kilo against $28,000. Moving goods in the EU, single market is easier and sentences for traffickers are milder. Extradition of traffickers for prosecution in Europe are rarer than in the US. The result? In 2021, authorities arrested 400 extractors in the port of Rotterdam, several of whom were repeated offenders. One of them was stopped as many as nine times and confiscated more than 70,000 kilos of cocaine, a 74% increase from the previous year. With such volumes and the profits they imply, it was unlikely that the traffic would remain free from bloodshed forever. Until about 15 years ago, the situation was under control. Running the cocaine trade was a small community of Colombian immigrants who quickly realized that the best way to operate in the country was not to show knives in the street and offer huge bribes, but rather to keep a low profile and disguise the trafficking with illicit activities. In other words, they learned to play by the rules of tacit tolerance we mentioned earlier. With increasing drug imports, however, competition to control the traffic became fiercer. In 2012, the first egregious episode of street violence took place. Two men died in a shooting in Amsterdam, followed by a chase worthy of an action movie in which criminals fearlessly shoot at the police, a scene never seen before in the Netherlands. In the years that followed, the Dutch population witnessed an unprecedented escalation of violence. In 2016, a drug dealer was beheaded outside an Amsterdam shisha bar. In 2018, a man named Ridwan Bekali was murdered in his office within a week from the announcement that his brother Nabil would testify in the infamous Marengo trial, which will come up again later in the story. The following year, in 2019, the same fate befell Nabil's defender, Dirk Virsum, a respected Amsterdam lawyer, killed on his doorstep. In 2021, it was the turn of Peter R. de Vries, a renowned investigative journalist and Nabil's spokesperson, who was murdered in broad daylight in a cafe in the capital. Shortly thereafter, Prime Minister Mark Rutte was put under escort, another unprecedented measure in the Netherlands. And just some months ago, there was the shocking discovery of a series of photos depicting seven torture rooms hidden in containers in a small location in the south of the country. Inside one of the chambers lay the lifeless and literally shredded body of a woman. In the face of so much trafficking and violence, Dutch authorities could not remain indifferent. 
The port of Rotterdam has massively increased video surveillance, created a group of divers to retrieve drug shipments underwater, and set up a special team of 18 people to better combat trafficking. Controls on transiting cargo are no longer random and occasional, but guided by a series of risk indicators, such as country of origin, declared content, and sending company. A shipment of bananas from Brazil, for example, is more likely to be inspected than one of clothes from China. In addition, being found without authorization in the port has become a crime, which can lead up to a year in prison. Lastly, the Port Authority has also started providing training to its staff to recognize and properly respond to corruption attempts. At institutional level, the Minister of Justice recently announced a 13 million euro investment to combat drug trafficking in Dutch ports and airports, while lawmakers have updated anti-money laundering rules to make the Netherlands a less hospitable place for criminals. Any financial transaction made by a criminal, even a legitimate one such as grocery shopping, is now considered a form of money laundering. In addition, any cash transaction over 3,000 euros now has to be declared and Dutch banks, after years spent paying hefty fines for negligence in IML controls, are now required to communicate with each other to report suspicious customers or transactions. In addition to strengthening the custom apparatus and taking financial measures, Dutch authorities have also been working to infiltrate the communications of criminal networks active in the country. It is precisely through massive message tracking and decryption operations that law enforcement agencies have been able to identify the heads of the country's largest criminal organization, the Mokro Mafia. What is the Mokro Mafia? Mokro is the pejorative term used by the Dutch to refer to immigrants of Moroccan descent. The term Mokro Mafia first appeared in a 2014 book and is to some extent misleading. Although Moroccans initiated the organization and still play a predominant role in it, participation in the Mokro Mafia is not exclusive to their ethnic group. Dutch nationals, immigrants from former Caribbean colonies and even Westerners residing in the country are also involved. I speak of participation and not affiliation for a reason. Unlike Italian mafias, the members of the Mokro Mafia are not bound by blood ties, initiation rights or codes of behavior, but by shared economic interests. It does not have a pyramidal structure or a boss of bosses. It is rather a consortium of criminal entrepreneurs who pool capital and expertise to illegally buy, import and distribute cocaine. The bond between its members is purely commercial in nature. Each of them puts a certain amount of money into a common pot used to pay for large imports of cocaine from South America. Once the drug arrives in the Netherlands, traffickers distribute them in proportion to their financial contribution and then resell them in the respective markets. This allows them to minimize the costs and risks of drug trafficking. According to the authors of the book Mokro Mafia, this organization is reminiscent of the 17th century East India Company, where Dutch merchants could buy shares in the company to import valuable goods from Southeast Asia. Of course, these collaborations did not always go smoothly. Remember the woman cutting pieces who was recently discovered in a torture room? 
Authorities identified her as Naima Jilal, a prominent trafficker of Moroccan descent commonly called Aunt because of her older age. After an opulent life between the Netherlands and Spain, Naima disappeared suddenly in 2019 after getting into a car in Amsterdam. Her death was reportedly linked with debt and failed deals with other drug lords. One of the first names connecting with her case was that of Pete Costa, a.k.a. Roger P., a 50-year-old Dutchman sentenced for 15 years in prison for drug trafficking in Rotterdam, as well as for building and operating the seven torture chambers, which he rented to third parties to carry out their gruesome punishments. The main suspect in the rental of torture room where Jilal was found is the man on whose phone the photos of her execution were found. His name is Ridwan Tagi, and he's the closest you can get to a boss in the Mokro Mafia. It is worth taking a few moments to talk about Ridwan Tagi. Like other traffickers of Moroccan origin, Tagi appeared on the Dutch drug scene around 2006, importing cocaine on an old hashish route connecting North Africa and the Netherlands. After ousting Colombian competitors and prevailing even on the Italian Drangheta, the Mokro Mafia established itself as the leading cocaine trafficker in the Netherlands, and Tagi as its king. Tagi worked his way up the ranks of the Mokro Mafia with unprecedented violence, reflected in the long list of crimes mentioned earlier. In 2019, Tagi was finally arrested and extradited from Dubai, where he used to run his Rotterdam business. His right hand, Said Ratsuki, was also arrested shortly thereafter in Medellin, Colombia. Today, Tagi and Ratsuki sit alongside other 15 people in the notorious Marengo trial mentioned earlier. Fun fact, the name has nothing to do with the Battle of Marengo or the Piedmontese town of the same name, but was chosen randomly by a computer. The main charge in the Marengo trial is the murder of six people between 2015 and 2017. To this, we should add the killing of Reduan Bakali, of lawyer Dirk Virsum and of journalist Peter De Vries, as they were almost certainly ordered by Tagi himself from prison to weaken Nabil Bakali, a repentant of the Mokro Mafia and key witness in the trial. As the Mokro Mafia's motto goes, he who speaks dies. In a show of gangster power, Tagi has hired as his defensor one of the top international criminal lawyers in the country, Ines Vesky, an iron lady known for having previously represented presidents, businessmen and members of parliament involved in drug and arms trafficking. Tagi's choice has increased the media visibility of the trial, but it has also led to its extension. Vesky's first action was in fact to challenge certain procedural aspects of the trial to buy time. She deposed a request, later rejected, to change the jury, as in her opinion it was hostile to the defendant. In April this year, however, Vesky was arrested. She stands accused of passing orders from Tagi to his men, despite the fact that Tagi is being held in solitary confinement and is only allowed contact with his lawyer. Vesky is the second attorney to be arrested with these charges. The necessary change in lawyers has further delayed the trial. The verdict is now scheduled for February 27, 2024. In light of all this, can we call the Netherlands a European narco-state? The answer depends on your definition of a narco-state. In the traditional understanding of the term, no, 
the Netherlands is not an archostate, as collusion between institutions and drug traffickers is not systematic, rather limited to individual cases. According to Dutch criminologists, however, we can speak of a narco-state in the sense that drug trafficking organizations have become not only pervasive, but also highly visible in society, and that they have grown so powerful that they can threaten and even kill public figures. Will the measures put in place by the Dutch authorities and the Marengo trial change this situation? For now, the repressive measures seem to be displacing the phenomenon rather than eradicating it. Increased controls in the port of Rotterdam, for example, have led to the transfer of a significant portion of cocaine imports to the port of Antwerp, Belgium. Indeed, last year, Dutch, Belgian and German authorities carried out the largest cocaine seizures in European history, 25 tons of drugs between the port of Antwerp and Hamburg. Similarly, the reform to banks' anti-money laundering practices simply turned them into transit points to less regulated jurisdictions such as Hong Kong and Turkey. Criminals have also found ways to circumvent controls, for example by using cryptocurrencies or the Islamic Hawala banking system, which relies on people, rather than banks, to move money across borders, as we explain in the episode on terrorist financing. As for the Marengo trial, its outcome remains uncertain, but it undoubtedly has the great merit of having brought to the public's attention an otherwise ignored phenomenon, that of organized crime in the Netherlands. If the Marengo trial succeeds in changing Dutch society's perception of organized crime at local level, the Netherlands will be one step closer to countering it. Thank you for listening through this story. To comment on this episode or propose new content, don't forget to follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, and X. We'll be back with more organized crime stories next month.